so I know you've, you've heard that uh, Jeff is taking a sabbatical, and I encourage you, if you haven't already done so, uh, check out what he's written in the Northside Notes. I think it gives you a good idea of, of what he's doing with this month, and especially it gives us um, some good suggestions for ways that we can pray for Jeff through this month and pray for the Godwin family. So I really encourage you to, to grab a Northside Notes and check that out. Um, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, grateful to you for your word this morning. I ask that you'd open our ears, open our hearts, that we would hear your word and receive it. I ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to grant us understanding, to grant us wisdom. And I pray that you would be glorified this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Uh, Whether you're turning there in a Bible or looking it up in an app, uh, I encourage you to follow along as I read those verses this morning. Again, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now the, clearly the topic for this morning is forgiveness. Now I had uh, an interesting conversation about forgiveness. Uh, some of you may know I'm a part-time seminary student and I work full-time as an engineer. And in my role as an engineer, I get to, to have conversations with some interesting people. Uh, maybe not a representative cross-section of society, um, but nevertheless some, some real interesting people, and we have some real interesting conversation. And not long ago, this topic of forgiveness came up. And through that conversation, it, it really stuck with me. It really got me thinking about some of the ways that our culture, that the society around us, thinks about forgiveness. Because there are some ways that our society thinks about forgiveness that really differ from what we see in Scripture. 
And they differ in some real significant ways. And so this morning, as we go through this text, I want to look at this text in a couple of different ways. One, comparing how does, how does our society think about forgiveness? How does it talk about forgiveness? And how does that contrast with what Scripture tells us? But we also need to think about, about forgiveness in a couple of different contexts, a couple of relationships where we see forgiveness. First and foremost, we see forgiveness in our relationship with God. We see, we experience the forgiveness that God offers to his people. So that's, that's one, one way we see forgiveness that we're going to look at this morning. The other is the forgiveness that we offer one another. The forgiveness that occurs among people, among God's people, and among people in the world. Now these two, two ways that we see forgiveness, they're, they're not separate. They're not distinct, different types of forgiveness. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul is concluding a section where he's describing what it is to live like Christ. And he concludes it this way. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When he says, just as God has forgiven you, that means in the same manner, the same kind of forgiveness. It's the same forgiveness that God offers us, that we're to offer to the world around us. God is our model for forgiveness. And so as we read our scripture this morning, we'll see what God's forgiveness looks like, and in turn, what our forgiveness ought to look like. As we turn to to the first, just the first verse of this section, verse 21, uh, Peter comes out and asks a really important question. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I think this is a question that our society often asks. You know, how often do we continue to forgive? What is the end? How, when do we stop forgiving and move on from a relationship? And I, you know, our, I think our, our culture would tell us, well, it depends. It depends on what the offense is. Some things we forgive once and never again. Some things we may forgive three, four times. But I think we'll always find that there is an end. There is a point where we say no more. Um, but that's not what we find here in Scripture. It's interesting that this, this section follows immediately after a section that we refer to as, as church discipline. But what that section is about is first confronting wrongdoing. You know, it, Jesus tells us, go to the offender in private. If he refuses to listen, take two or three with you. If he still refuses to listen, take it to the church. Throughout this whole process, the goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. And so that's what, that's what's in Peter's mind as we come to this verse. So you can hear Peter saying, okay, Jesus, I understand the process. I understand how important it is to first confront wrongdoing, but to seek restoration and reconciliation. But Peter's question is, how many times do we continue to go through this process? How often will we continue to forgive? And I think he has some other things in the back of his mind. He may have the teaching of the rabbis in mind. At the time, the teaching of the rabbis suggested that a Jew is expected to forgive three times. But after three times, he's met his obligation, and there is no requirement to continue to forgive beyond those three times. Now, Peter, he says, how many times? Maybe seven times? I think he's been with Jesus long enough to know that Jesus is probably going to take this to the next level. You know, he's heard, he's heard Jesus do this before. I think he, he's heard what we call the Sermon on the Mount, 
where Jesus took a number of commandments and, and really impressed upon us that we need to, to go beyond just the, the minimum requirement. Jesus said, you know not to murder, but I tell you, don't even hate your brother. He also says, you know not to commit adultery, but don't even look lustfully. So I think with that in mind, Peter is saying, I know Jesus isn't going to tell me to stop at three. So maybe he's going to tell me to go as far as seven. And in the first century mindset, uh, that number seven is important. It symbolizes completeness. So Peter is thinking, after having forgiven seven times, that's the completeness of forgiveness. That's the entirety of forgiveness that should be offered. Of course, Jesus responds and says, no, not just seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations, 70 times seven. Now, whether the number is 77 or 490, it doesn't matter. I think Jesus' point is, if you're counting, if you have a list, you've missed the point. If you're checking off the boxes, waiting to get to the end where you no longer have to forgive, you've missed what Jesus is saying about forgiveness here. And this really stems from God's own act of forgiveness. Remember in the Ephesians verse, it tells us that God's forgiveness should be of the same kind as our own. And with that in mind, I think Peter could possibly even be asking, how many times will God forgive me? It's the same forgiveness. So if there's an end to the forgiveness we offer one another, there must be an end to God's forgiveness. And yet we know that God's forgiveness doesn't end. God's forgiveness is without end, and so and therefore... Uh, our forgiveness should also be without end. So when he tells us to instruct us to forgive endlessly, he's really telling us something about God's forgiveness. And you've been forgiven endlessly, so forgive as you've been forgiven. Forgive endlessly. But Jesus follows this instruction with a story. And in that story, we find a couple of other uh, characters of God's forgiveness that I think contrast with what our society tells us. One thing we see is uh, the extent of forgiveness. We see that our society wants to place limits on forgiveness. Our culture tells us that there are things that can be forgiven. Some things only once, some things just a few times. But then I think we also find that there are things our society tells us cannot be forgiven. Things that should not be forgiven. There are relationships that are damaged beyond any repair. That there are differences that are completely irreconcilable. And there's nothing to be done to restore them. But that's not the point of this parable. And this parable uses uh, monetary debts to make that point. We see an amount here, the first, the first servant's debt. We to- we're told that that's 10,000 talents. Now, I know some of you may be looking at your footnotes and seeing, okay, a talent, here it says it's 20, 20 years worth of wages. So you're doing the math, you find, okay, that's 200,000 years of wages. That's the debt. So you're thinking, how do I get that into modern U.S. dollars? And I, I came across a translation this week that I really think captured it. Um, his debt is roughly translated a bazillion dollars. Because the number just doesn't matter. It's so far beyond anything he could possibly hope to pay. But it's interesting, what does the servant ask for? He begs for patience. He asks for the master to give him more time 
And he says, if you're patient with me, I will pay everything. He expects, he intends that he will repay a bazillion dollars in debt. If only he's given a little more time. Now, it's clear that no amount of time will change his relationship to the master. He will forever be in debt because there's nothing he can do that's sufficient to pay off that debt. And so it is with us. We've, the parable is fairly clear. In, our, in this case, God is represented by the master. We as individuals are represented by this servant. And so it is with our relationship with God. Our relationship is so fractured, so broken, so impaired. There is such a great chasm separating us from God that there is nothing that we can do about it. There is nothing we can do to restore our relationship with God. And I think sometimes we're a little bit more like that servant than perhaps we'd like to admit. The servant says, be patient and I'll pay everything. I think we sometimes think, God, if you're patient with me, I'll do enough good to somehow make our relationship right. I'll find a way to do something that will restore our relationship. And I think we're just as short-sighted as this servant. There is nothing we can do. We can bargain, we can beg. On our own, we cannot make our relationship with God right. But I think it's really interesting the way that the servant, or the way the master responds to the request. The master doesn't say, okay, you've asked for patience. I'll be patient. I'll give you another week, another month, another year, maybe another decade. It doesn't matter. Wouldn't be enough. But that's not what the master says. Rather than grant the servant's request, the master goes far beyond and cancels the debt entirely. And that's what God does with us. When we feeble-mindedly ask for something so small, God goes so far beyond what we ask and grants us what we really need. He grants us the, the only thing that will make our relationship right, which is his perfect forgiveness. We read this morning, or we did a call and response from Psalm 103, and later in that chapter, uh, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has completely separated our, our, our sins, our shortcomings, from our relationship to allow for us to be fully restored to communion with him. And we see that unlike our culture, God's forgiveness is absolutely endless. It's unlimited. There's nothing we can do to overwhelm God's forgiveness. There is no chasm so great that God cannot cross it. There's, there's nothing that we can do that's so wrong, so heinous, that God will not forgive. There's nothing we can do that God will not forgive, that God does not desire to forgive. He wants to bring us back and to grant us mercy. And he offers grace that is greater than all of our sin. But we continue reading the parable and find that the servant then meets a fellow servant who also owed a debt. Now the amount that that fellow servant owed was something much smaller. Something more like maybe a few thousand dollars. Now it's important to note, it's not just a few dollars. It's not something that he could simply forget about. And that's not what this is about. It's not about forgetting about the transgression. It's not about forgetting the the damage done to a relationship. 
This amount is not trivial. But given a bit of patience, it's reasonable to think that he may be able to pay off the debt. And I think that's, that's the way our relationships are with one another. Yes, damage has been done. And damage that can't simply be forgotten. For, forgiveness is not about just forgetting that something happened. But the damage is nothing compared to the debt that's been forgiven us by God. But this can be challenging. Because there are things that seem to overwhelm our own human ability to forgive. There are things that feel like it's just too great, too great a harm, too great an offense to overcome and to forgive. And yet the gospel tells us that we are to be prepared to welcome all who repent and seek God, no matter what they may have done. And so in order to to forgive like this, we have to seek God's strength. As we're being made more like God, we become able to forgive the way that God forgives. But there's more to this parable. Because our culture often is inclined to put conditions on forgiveness. So the, the world around us says that there are prerequisites that must be met in order for a person to be deserving of forgiveness. There are conditions that must be satisfied in order for a person to be worthy of forgiveness. And that's often how we deal with, with one another. We, we say things like, you've got to at least, at least demonstrate that you're working towards making things right. At least meet me halfway and then, and only then will I be able to forgive. We also, we keep score. We have to balance things. Maybe I'll forgive you today because I, I owe you one. I offended you previously and you forgave me, so now I owe you this forgiveness. Or perhaps it's the other way and I'll forgive you today because honestly I know that I will offend you sometime in the future. I need to get that credit. And so there's this balance of who owes whom what and how much and when will it be cashed in. And that's the way our world often deals in terms of forgiveness is, is repaying one another and keeping accounts of these transgressions and debts. But we see from this parable that God's forgiveness is absolutely unconditional. And so we, it's important that we look at the order in which these events take place. Because first, the master forgives the servant. It's not a reward for forgiving. The master doesn't observe the servant doing something worthwhile, forgiving a fellow servant, and then respond by forgiving. No, the master acts first. The master forgives the debt before the servant ever interacts with his fellow servant concerning the debt. And yet the the servant doesn't respond the way we might expect. The master was willing to deal with the servant on on the basis of mercy. And yet the servant insisted on settling accounts on the basis of justice. And he was well within his rights to throw his fellow servant in prison. That was an acceptable punishment, an acceptable way to deal with with the debt. But the servant insisted on justice being applied. And so the master allowed for that justice to be applied. And Jesus ends the narrative of this parable by adding this one last difficult sentence. We find in verse 35, he says, 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know about you, that's tough for me to hear. It seems almost to contradict God's unconditional offer of mercy and forgiveness. I really like something that R.C. Sproul had to say about this passage. He says, those who know God's mercy must operate on the principle of mercy. If they do not show mercy but insist on justice, they will not receive mercy but justice. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart and is subject to torment until he should pay all. A truly forgiving heart is one result of spiritual rebirth. I think this this quote is very useful because he's talking about those who know God's mercy. It's not those who know the facts of God's mercy. It's not those who read that, okay, God is merciful, but it hasn't made any impact. I think here he's talking about those who have known God's mercy in an experiential way. They know what it is to have a life that's transformed by God's forgiveness, by God's mercy. And having experienced that forgiveness, the life is changed, and they are able to then offer the kind of forgiveness that God offers. And so we look at the servant here, who was unforgiving. And I wonder, did he truly know? Did he truly experience? Was he transformed by God's mercy? He didn't really seem to grasp what it was that was being forgiven. He understood that, sure, the the debt has been wiped away, but he didn't understand how grave his situation was. He still thought that he would be able to pay the debt. And so he's, he's not really understood the magnitude of the forgiveness that he's received. And he responds by not showing the same kind of mercy to his fellow servant. And as I think back to that conversation with my coworkers, I find the same thing. My coworkers haven't known, they haven't experienced God's mercy in a, transform, in a transforming way. And so we find that they don't forgive in the same way that God forgives. It is God's forgiveness that should inspire our own godly forgiveness. That's part of what it means to be the people of God. We are called out. We're to be separate from the world. And this is one of the ways that we are unique. We're different. We know God's forgiveness, and so we forgive as God forgives. A couple of weeks ago, Jeff reminded us of our need to to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. And I think this good news of God's forgiveness is something we need to repeat to ourselves on a daily basis. You've experienced God's forgiveness repeatedly. Please don't forget that. There is nothing that you've done that's beyond God's ability to forgive. God's forgiveness is limitless. Don't forget that. And God's forgiveness is not our response, is not a response to our own forgiveness. We don't have to meet God halfway. In fact, there's nothing that we can do that would make our, make us worthy of God's forgiveness. Please don't forget that God's forgiveness is unconditional. And as you experience God's forgiveness and as your life is transformed by that forgiveness, I think you'll find that you respond with a more godly forgiveness. Your forgiveness becomes more like his. Your forgiveness comes to never run out. Your forgiveness doesn't become limited. It doesn't become conditional. And so we ask ourselves, does my forgiveness look more like the forgiveness of the world or has it been transformed 
to look more like the forgiveness of God. We are, as Christ's followers, being transformed. And godly forgiveness is one result of that transformed life. And this, this ability to forgive as God forgives, it is a gift that I pray that you will all receive from God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we thank you and praise you for your mercy, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your mercy that is without end. And we thank you for your forgiveness that extends to cover all our sin. There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve your mercy. So we thank you for offering forgiveness without condition. Having experienced your perfect forgiveness, I pray that that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives, giving us the strength to practice godly forgiveness in our own relationships with one another. I ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.